When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Bob phone from California, he's our guest, painter, singer, songwriter, Dan Byrne. Well, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Yes, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Well, you must tell me, baby, how your head feels under something like that, under your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat (laughs) (laughs) good uh great why did you choose that dan um so you know i could have chosen any number of things and and lot lot more i was gonna go to visions of johanna you know something like that Mm. but but in a very personal way this song kind of provided a, a, a shift inside uh, when I was listening to it. I was 16, and I had only been listening to Dylan for a few weeks at that point. Maybe I was 15. Mm-hmm. And at, up until that point, you know, I thought it, sounded, it was cool. I liked the sound. I liked the sound of the words, I, you know, everything. But it, ha- it hadn't really sunken in yet mm-hmm. and this particular song I it was a hot summer afternoon maybe I had sampled a little Iowa greenery mm-hmm. possible 
And I suddenly, like, it clicked that, like, everything he was saying had a little bit of a sneer to it and was slightly, what it meant was slightly different than, you know what I mean? It's like, it, mm. it, was, it was that ironic tone. Uh, and it was exactly how I felt mm. and couldn't articulate, just, you know, about everything, about the world. And uh, so that was like a portal for me. Everybody's maybe got one, but that was mine. That was interesting because I remember when I first heard that it was it, I couldn't deal with the sort of what we would might now call the surrealistic aspects of it. Yeah, I thought mattress balances on a bottle of wine. I was yeah. not that kid, you know. I I was a Beatles boy, and uh, it took me yeah. a while to to get in there, you know, to to really appreciate it. But you had the walrus. I mean. Yeah, you did, but um, I am the walrus is like that's pretty easy, you know. See, just you just see a walrus. Pick, trying to picture, I do have a quite a visual thing, and I was literally trying to picture a a mattress bouncing on a bottle of wine, which is not at all what you're really, you know. It's just it's a it's a sneery, nasty, funny, you know, thing. You got to yeah. just accept it for what it is. I realized years later, but. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but Dylan scared the fuck out of me um, when I first heard him. And with, you know, with that sort of stuff, it just, uh, you know, I How I felt, old were you when, you when you were first exposed to that song? Uh, I think I was, well, no, not that particular song. I heard uh, Rainy Day Women, which was, you know, a, a single, which I think didn't do all that well at the time. But I, I heard Rainy Day Women when I was 15. Yeah. And it scared the fuck out of me. Really? I just thought those guys are having some weird fun that I don't know. And I didn't, <laughs> yeah. start, I didn't start sampling uh, Manitoba greenery uh, until I was 16. That's when everything changed for me. Yeah. So I, you know, it was the greenery. That yeah. was, that that was the thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I first heard that song on a, on a live a bootleg of the, of the, you know, the Manchester Free Trade Hall concert when I was about 19. And so... I, you know, the studio version I, I grew to love, but I, my way in was that intro. I see you got your brand new leopard skin, <laughs> pillbox hair. <laughs> yes. And that, I just loved that before I even got oh, to the yeah. song. And then, you know, and then it was <laughs> Robbie Robertson and I just thought it was fucking great. But I got uh, those bootlegs in Camden Town. Great place to get them. Yeah. And, and that sneer, Dan, when you heard that sneer in that song, did you then go looking for that same sneer in, in other Dylan songs and find it? Oh yeah, but I mean, you know, but it was it was then more than that, you know. So it quickly became the way he would use the language. I mean, that I was listening to uh, some people talking about James Joyce and how he just broke open the language, and how after that, every every word that every Irish poet or writer has ever written since. Mm. has been washed, you know, through <laughs> with that. And it's exactly the same thing. It's like a, a it was like when Jackson Pollock took his canvases off the wall and put them on the ground and started pouring stuff. You know, it was a completely different approach to to the language. That became, I think, the the dominant thing. But the yeah, the sneering thing was was really key to like getting me through my mid teens, I think. Did you recognize any sort of uh, Midwestern sort of sense of humor there? Or was there anything you could relate to on that level? Um, well, sure. I mean, it, it, 
it was not lost on me, you know, being an isolated Jewish kid in Iowa, that this guy had come from, you know, just up the road, mm. up in Minnesota, uh, in some, you know, areas where where I had even, you know, gone to travel and visit friends and whatever. Had you been to uh, to Duluth or even Hibbing? Yeah, yeah. I had a friend who moved up there uh, after sixth grade. My best friend moved to Virginia, Minnesota, which is right there in the Iron Range, they call oh. it. Mm. And uh, I think I went to the Hibbing State Fair once, watch, watch monster trucks, watch this guy <laughs> ride a, a car around a track on two wheels. Because um, there is a real when you do when you grow up in an isolated place. I mean, I'm from a city of about half a million, but it's in the middle of the Canadian prairies, and uh, it does have a very specific sense of humor. Like there's a kind of a playing like you're dumb humor that I think you you get from yeah. From it's where like I'm from. it's you know maybe it's a way of uh, it was that way the way of passing in a way. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you have to sort of underplay. Well, it's also a way, you know, you, you, if you want to eavesdrop on people's conversations, which as a writer, as a anything, you know, as a, as a you just want to find out about people, uh, you got to kind of be invisible in a way. Uh, I don't know if that answers that question. But. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, playing, you know, it's a simplistic way of, of saying it, playing dumb, but playing less than you know. I mean, I find that uh, I've lived over here for most of my life now, but I still sound like this. So uh, people think I don't really understand about the class system and various other, you know, complex things about living in, in the UK. And I'm happy with that because I feel like a bit of a spy. <laughs> I feel like I know something that people don't think, don't realize that I know. Now I've blown my cover. Of <laughs> but as far as as far as Bob goes, did you go on to? Uh, did you uh, were you writing stuff around that time as when you were that young? Or yeah, um, I was. Well, I was always writing songs, but I didn't think of it as anything until I added the guitar to it. You know, that sort of codified the whole thing. And that came right after I first started hearing hearing Bob and Phil Oaks. Somebody played both of those things for me the same night when I was like 14. I think the first Dylan song I heard was uh, was Shelter from the Storm. And oh. it's like, <laughs> I mean, if you look at that record alone, it's like just the, the four pillars of that thing. You know, Tangled Up in Blue and Idiot Wind and Lily, Rosemary, and then Shelter from the Storm. It's like, come on. That's, mm. that's, that can't all be on one record. Uh, so that was kind of my introduction. So I was just like, well, I got to get a guitar, clearly. I'll trade in the cello that I've been playing really badly for a bunch of years, and I'll get something that you can play songs with. So I think I was probably writing songs as quickly as I was learning songs. And did you learn Dylan songs uh, at the beginning? I think I did learn some Dylan songs, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, well, I, play, I I learned Freight Train Blues, you know, his Freight Train Blues. Yeah, yeah. From his first album. All those songs were real important to me when I was learning singing and songing and everything. Uh, I still play Freight Train Blues. I've 
I've I've swung it a little bit more over the years because I heard Roy Acuff's original version <laughs> at some point, and he kind of swung it more. But uh, you know, I sing that long note because uh, well, it's fun, and it's also it's just good training, and it's also like making sure you're breathing. So I'm up about forty seconds on that long note. <laughs> I love your version of Airplane Blues, I got to say. Uh, and I, I love your the Lightning Hopkins uh, the, with the long intro. Uh, yeah. Also about, about your, you know, your relationship with your dad, because uh, I'm just really interested in those sorts of songs. Family songs, relationship songs, mm. that sort of thing, which... You know, Dylan's stuff was all very coded, but I mean, I you know, in your stuff, I, 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 you you often write about your your background and that sort of stuff, which seems very much not what Bob does, because you you've been pretty honest, it seems to me, about that sort of thing. Um, well, you know, I mean, we we all find our own ways to do it. I mean, he, you know, I, 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 there's something very very guarded about him. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it all—it probably all comes out, but it's probably all couched in character and you know, myth making. And you know, I—I I don't know if he was like that from the get-go, or if his you know really early fame kind of pushed him that way. Maybe some of both. I would—I guess. You know, another thing that that really from that first record was that talking blues song. You know, uh, that that started me on a life. You know, I'm, I've always <laughs> never gotten too far away from from a talking blues song. I mean, you know, it's it's weird because it's like he he went through that those phases and he just put them down and he moved on. It's not like he. I mean, you could say that uh, you could say that murder most foul is a is a 18 minute. You know, it's some it's some talking blues song, isn't it? But it's it's not <laughs> yeah. in the old Woody Ramblin' Jack form of talking blues songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess with the talking uh, blues format, is it must be quite freeing to hear as a songwriter because it does say to you, you know, you can mess with structure a bit, you can mess with rhyme a bit, you can you can ramble on a bit and bring it back for the, oh, the yeah. formalized bit. Totally, and you know, and and all of his stuff, and the the. Well, the, you know, the blonde on blonde stuff, probably the most of all is like, well, you can do anything. The playing field of song is, is, you know, just as vast as the imagination. It's a, so to, so to say that song is, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus out is, Mm -hmm. you know, is totally uh, exploded. It's funny you mentioned that because I was I was I love Shelter from the Storm obviously but I was listening to it a few years ago with someone who I knew didn't like Dylan and I started mm-hmm. listening to it through his ears and thinking you know is he going to like this and I thought oh he's just going to think it's monotonous because there is there's is no chorus and it never really yeah. occurred to me before because I like it you know but I thought god if you didn't like this it would be really really annoying and I sort of started Well thinking, I mean but it's a it's a what would you call it it's a refrain that yeah. last line but that's how you know for hundreds and hundreds of years, that's what, you know, all those songs were. They'd have a little refrain at the end of each verse. Mm. and they, Or hymns, they're like that. They don't go into a chorus and a bridge. Yeah, true. What did your friend think when My you friend. played? Yeah, yeah. What oh, did you think? I, mean, I could see he was, he was just in physical pain, just going, what, what, <laughs> what, you know, why, why are we listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can't force somebody to, uh, you can lead somebody to Bob Dylan, but you can't make him drink. Oh, no, I stopped trying to force my friends a, a long time ago. That way, yeah. that way madness lies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you, I mean, when you started writing songs down, were you as 
prolific as you are now? Because I mean, you you know, you you churn them out. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that was always uh, that was always my way of approaching things. I mean, I, I it's harder to to jump back into a headspace, uh, you know, to mm. to start and then leave it and to jump back in. At least for me with song, I mean, it's not like if you're writing a novel, obviously you're not going to sit down and then at the end of your sitting session be done with it. But songs are are a lot of times like that. Um, and it's it's just easier. You know, you can come back and, and comb over it and, and nitpick it afterwards, but I, th- I feel like it's easier to get the f- the long throw of it at one time, you know. Speaking of the early stuff, I was listening to uh, Jerusalem the other day, one of your great early songs, and I remember when I first heard it, I found it quite shocking when you when you when you came out and said, "I am the Messiah," I, and they repeated it, "I am the Messiah," and it it never occurred to me before we uh, we invited you on, on the podcast that. But did that have anything to do with the fact that people started to pigeonhole you? There was some talk about your resemblance to Dylan in a lot of ways, and I, it never occurred to me that that you might have been saying, "I yeah, yeah, I am. I'm Bob Dylan." Was that uh, that that was just me being listened to too many times? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> did that have anything to do with with people no, that calling didn't. you the new Dylan? No, no, no. no the <laughs> others. Uh, that was. No, I was the Messiah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Bob was Bob, <laughs> uh, and and uh, also, I, of course, I listened to Talk and Dan and Bob and Woody, which the uh, song you referred to, the uh, you know, just now. And uh, again, I I heard it kind of a I'd always considered just a really clever, funny parody of of any Talk and Blues that Bob had ever done. Anyway. But it also occurred to me that maybe you were taking the piss out of Bob and the visit to Woody and the sort of the whole legend of that. Uh-huh. Anything there? Well, it wasn't really taking the piss out of him. It was it was starting with that image that you know, that we all know, the the Bob visits to Woody in the hospital. Mm. And how you know Bob sat there and sang songs. A lot of them, I think, were Woody songs. From what I hear, Woody yeah. liked to hear his own songs, <laughs> uh, which you can't blame him. But then you know, so then Bob somehow takes that experience and goes on to be Bob. You know, and it's like, well, something was passed there. Something was there was some blessing that was given, uh, anointing, you know, it's like, it's really biblical, I guess, too. But it's like, here's this visitation to the, you know, and then Bob is allowed to become Bob. Um, so it was just, you know, then I was coming along and I was like, well, gee, I, I want, I want that. Let's see, uh, who can I, oh, Bruce. Well, he's not really sick. Well, we can, we can fudge it a little bit. I'll break into his place, find him in bed, and then he, you know, he doesn't take too kindly to it. He's like, "I'm not sick. I'm not in the hospital. Get out of here." So that it was just having fun with those with those images, and, and you- probably trying to, you know, yeah, because uh, like twenty thousand other people that 
that came along and played guitar and wrote some songs and all that and got compared to to Bob Dylan, uh, you know, I, I guess it was a, a way of sort of uh, having fun with it and deflecting it a little bit. Did uh, uh, Bruce ever didn't work? Get back but yeah. To you? <laughs> did Did you ever hear any reaction from from Bruce? From Bruce? Yeah. Um. One time, I was I was hanging out after his first show back with the E Street Band in Barcelona, and I I was real tight with his producer who also worked with me on some stuff. But so I was in the after party little thing in some hotel in Barcelona Mm. and Bruce sees me from across the room and he goes, Hey, what are you doing here? (laughs) And then he, and then he came over and he said, I heard you wrote a song about me. And so he had heard that I'd wrote a song about him. I don't know if he had heard it. If I had been really on my game, I would have said, guitar. And, yes, exactly. And played it for him on the spot. But I was just like. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. He was aware that I'd written a song about him. And I, I, I've got to just ask you about the, um, the, I know Dylan reacted badly to uh, something that you, uh, that you wrote about him. <laughs> If you if you wouldn't mind reliving that just very briefly, uh, I was writing for a little song songwriting rag in Hollywood in the early '90s, and it was just a column, so I could write anything I wanted. And mostly, I just made stuff up. Okay, I I'll, I just made stuff up, <laughs> uh, but based on like the you know the industry that I was running into the 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 publishers and all those, you know, song pluggers and manager, you know. Uh, and I think the Millie Vanilli thing had just hit. So the the notion of people, you know, sort of fudging things and not being quite what they appeared to be was was in the forefront of people's minds. So I wrote this thing where I invented having interviewed Bob Dylan's mom <laughs> in which she reveals that she wrote all of Bob's songs actually that he was too busy and he was on the road and he didn't really have the interest in it but she wrote the songs and sent it to them to Bob and he sang them and it was a nice arrangement it worked out very well he wrote one song which was man gave names to all the animals <laughs> all the other ones uh uh she had written. And so I wrote this up in the same issue, uh, Paul Zolo, who you probably are aware of, the, uh, the yeah. guy who wrote, yeah, the, the, all those Song, interviews songwriter. on songwriter. Yeah. So he wrote for the same publication. He might have been the editor. And he, so he wrote, he actually got a Bob Dylan interview. And he interviewed Bob Dylan. A great interview. Mm. And it ran, and it coincidentally ran in the same issue <laughs> as my spurless interview with his mom. Uh, So it was like two, three years later, apparently, he was in a hotel in Japan, and somehow this issue of Song Talk got into his hands, probably because he had this interview Mm. with Paul Zolo. Well, he I don't know if he read that or not. I think he did. I don't know. Who knows? But he read mine. (laughs) And he, on... 
on this Japanese hotel letterhead, he wrote this scathing response. Uh, I don't know who he was addressing it to. Maybe Song Talk, maybe Paul Zolo. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but it, yeah, he call, in, it, in it he called me a scurrilous little wretch with a hard on for comedy. <laughs> uh, and it, you know, he was not amused at all that uh, <laughs> I had taken liberties with his sainted mother. And you know, I, fair enough. <laughs> well, at least you credit him for one of his finest songs. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think- <laughs> how could how could I wasn't going to take that one from him. <laughs> Uh-huh. Have you had any dealings with him or, or via him since that that letter? No. No, they, your, your time with Bob is. <laughs> yeah, you got your your ten minutes. That was Bob. it. You know, it's yeah. like my lifetime of of uh, of you know feeling really connected to this to this guy is 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 now. Uh, yeah, that's our. That's our interaction, I think. Did, well, um, who I knows? Know, it's, uh, life is long. <laughs> yeah, never say never. You uh, you worked with Emmylou Harris uh, a few years ago, right? Uh, I know you did a duet with Emmylou Harris. I don't suppose you discussed Bob while you were doing that. Uh, no. Sweet, no, we didn't. Um, to be honest, uh, I recorded my bit in L.A., and uh-huh. uh, she recorded her bit in wherever she was. And and you've worked with Chuck Plotkin as well. Must have been a few Bob stories there. Oh yeah, lots of Bob stories. Lots <laughs> of Bob stories. Lots of Bruce stories. I would just kind of uh, pump him, you know, prompt him. So did Bruce ever? So when you were with Bob, yeah, and the stories would come out. Um, Care uh, to share? Any? Well, uh, one, well, one that six. We were in the studio, so he was telling us this time of when. They had the sh- the record that Chuck did with with Bob was Shot of Love, and they were doing it at uh, Chuck's Clover Studio in L.A. And uh, he said Bob wouldn't wear headphones. Oh no 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 no, not gonna wear. It. So they had to do everything live in a room. And one time they had the whole thing booked out, and all the musicians were there, and everybody was there, and Bob wasn't showing up, and. And Chuck was like, well, one thing that may have happened was maybe Bob's writing a song. That's something only he can do is write a Bob Dylan song. Maybe that's what he's doing. And so, uh, but I guess a few hours later, they got a call from Bob and he said, oh, I'm in Minnesota. <laughs> I, I forgot about that. So. I think it's quite a good album, Shot of Love. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, say it's the the greatest thing he's ever done, but I think the the first song, the last song, and two or three along the way are really, really good. Oh, yeah. I really like that album. Um, you know, another one that uh, my when I was making my first record, we were, our engineer was Makaja, Makaja Ryan, who had done the Good As I've Been To You. Oh, wow. Uh, oh. And the one after that. And, so, and that was just basically him and Bob. So that there were some good stories there wow. too. Just you know, I would just so I would I was making that record. And I was just listening to these guys, and it, it uh, you know, it felt like whoa, 
We're doing something here. Did you pick up on anything that, you know, that you were told that Bob did that you sort of thought, oh, I'm going to give that a shot? It's like going to Minnesota uh, without telling anyone. Uh, yeah, I don't know that any of those things were going to necessarily, you know, promote good good working habits. One guy I was working with, one guy, Duke McVinney, he, he, I think I, I had a habit of, of not really tuning my guitar. And he told me, yeah, you know, those Dylan records, uh, he was always really in tune. I, I don't know if that's true, but he, he, he told me that just, I think, so that I would be more prone to tune my guitar. <laughs> that period I, of his career fascinates me, those, those two acoustic albums, because yeah. that's around the time I, I, I was in my early 20s and I got into him. And, you know, I was desperate for him to produce another major work. Yeah. And, you know, the 90s kind of wore on and you thought, maybe this isn't going to happen. And, and I understand the two albums and things, but there were no new songs. And, yeah. you know, it's, I started to think, is this it? Have I missed this guy's output in my life? And of course, then we had time out of mind, and we had the entire second half of his career, and it was all it was all good. But I'm, I'm fascinated with what he was doing in those in those sort of wilderness years when he when he seemed to be kind of learning music again, almost going right back to the source. And and you know, there were there were children's songs on Under the Red Sky, and there were very primal folk songs on Goes Up Into You and Well Gone Wrong. And then when he came out at the end of the '90s, it was almost like he was ready to to do it again or something. Yeah, it was like he was clearing out clearing out his mind with those songs. Was there ever a time that he lost you, that you um, you stepped off the Bob bus? Um, not really, because if, you know, if there's something that, that he's doing that isn't striking your fancy at that moment, there's a million other things you can go to for, for whatever sort of, it's, it's a pretty... It's a pretty nourishing song bag. So you you weren't. Um, I mean, I stepped off the bus for uh, saved, and uh, yeah, I couldn't be dealing with the really hardcore mm. uh, Jesus stuff. And uh, I've I've dipped back into it now, but I still find that that super hardcore stuff pretty pretty hard to take. Well, I can understand that slow train coming though, boy. Oh, yeah, I mean that's. What a well-made record for, among other things. Yeah. I heard that on vinyl just two days ago um, for the first time on a, on a proper sound system. Um, and it just sounded phenomenal. I mean, Jerry Wexler, God, that man knew what he was doing, but it just sounds great. Did Bob say that was his first professional record? Yeah, I think he said something like that. Yeah, that, that rings a bell. Yeah, I guess he wouldn't. It's funny. I could see Jerry Wexler kind of. I can imagine him. Not not that I know him, but but he was so experienced to say, you know, Bob, step back from the microphone because you know he was. I know that the first what is it, three or four albums he kept hitting the mic with his mouth and you know stepping on the mic stand and you know banging and the probably mic. Probably wouldn't. Probably wouldn't do you know extra takes and yeah. Yeah, no, he, he, you know, I think he hated uh, the actual concept of going in and capturing y- your spirit um, in, the, in the studio. There seemed to be something about that that, that, um, that he didn't like. But maybe when you had an older and also kind of an older Jewish guy so, sort of saying, you know, Bob, be good, okay? <laughs> Step back from the mic. Don't fuck it up. Okay, I'm going to count it off. I'm just a man. I'm channeling a non-existent Jerry Wexler. I yeah. never, never heard him. 
Um, but going back to Bob in your in your songs, you know, you you uh, you do deal with uh, God and religion a lot. Did you? I mean, people have, but you've done kind of more than most people I know. More than my share. <laughs> well, yeah. Among other things, it's probably a useful. Uh, I don't know what the what's the word metaphor contrivance. I mean, uh, well, I think it's a long tradition of. You know, Jews wrestle with God. They're allowed to have conversations and even challenge and, and you know, talk to God as, as though, you know, he's just another dude that you get to wrestle with. So that that's a pretty freeing concept, actually. Mm. I mean, I think Bob, correct me, anybody, if I'm wrong, but I think Bob dealt with the Holocaust once in one lyric, uh, I think I think with God on our side. And I wasn't oh, yeah. quite sure what he was, you know, sort of saying there. But you, Dan, you've dealt with that in a number of different ways, which not a lot of songwriters touch that. That's a tough, tough topic. Um, yeah, I mean, it was real close to me growing up, Um both my p- folks had uh, been pretty, uh, pretty uh, close to it, mm. so it was large in my personal stuff, I guess. Yeah, but I, I think it, you know that's a it's a tough, it's taking a huge weight, and I um yeah, well your, your song Lithuania I think is is just great, and it's also I guess it's about. 10 minutes long, something like that. And you've written quite a few long songs, which a lot of people also don't really want to take on board. Well, did, yeah. Did I mean, it, it, again, it's like that's, those are, the, those are some of the lessons as a songwriter that you learn from, from Bob. You know, it's like he, he's always had long songs and he's, they've gotten longer and longer. It's, it's incredible. I mean, if you just take his songs that are I don't know. Let's just what what would it look like if we just took his songs that were even say nine minutes or more? What is what a song bag that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Woody had that Tom Joad one. I think it took two sides in in those days. Um, uh, but all those long story songs too. I mean, if you go back to the to the sixteen hundreds. There are probably a lot of songs that were thirteen verses, sixteen verses, but it's a, it's different than the three minutes. I love three minutes. I don't. I'm a, I'm, there's no bigger Beatles fan than me, and especially the early Beatles and Elvis Costello. All those perfect little two minute songs. Mm. Um, mm. There's a beauty in that, but the but there's something in the in the sprawl of a long song that uh, it's hard to beat. Is there any particular Dylan song that's that you think is a favorite of yours? That's kind of uh, sort of a lost classic. That is, you know, it's not a sort of a best of greatest hits. I mean, it's hard to call any Dylan song a lost classic because you know, I mean, two two that come to mind are uh, "Abandoned Love" and "Tomorrow's a Long Time." Those are both uh, sublime. Have they sort of soundtracked your life, certain Dylan songs? Like, I know that Tomorrow Was a Long Time was uh, when I first heard that I was breaking up with somebody and uh, I played her that and we got back together again. <laughs> so so uh, I don't know if Dylan's ever soundtracked your life in any 
Oh, all the time. All the time. I mean, it's like these pearls of of wisdom and challenging uh, that can come up anytime. I mean, you know, obviously in Rome, (laughs) I'm singing Masterpiece the whole time I'm there. If I'm on the 80 going through Ohio and I see Ashtabula, you know, (laughs) then I'm lonesome where I go, you know. You're going to make me look. You know, um, that happens all, constantly, all the time. And then there's just stuff that comes up randomly. Um, you know, I, it's probably like somebody who knows Bible verses real well. And they're always floating in and out of their head. After you uh, lost a couple of fingertips in your the snowblower accident a couple of years ago, um, I attended this concert that you, uh, that you gave in, in London. And you uh, couldn't play the guitar. Uh, And I think you couldn't play the guitar for quite a while. And I was wondering if that, and of course, Bob doesn't seem to play the guitar anymore. It hasn't for some years. Did that change your music? And do you think it changed his music, having to go back to the piano? Um, Well, it certainly, yeah, it did change mine. And and playing the piano has been a godsend, really. I don't, looking back, I don't regret that that injury at all. I can play the guitar just fine now, so mm-hmm. I didn't lose that. And I gained all this other, just this whole other vehicle and way into music. And it's really changed the way I write and the way I sing, I think. Uh, I'm, You know, obviously it's uh, got to be different for him to be the the piano guy than the guitar guy it's probably much more comfortable in a way for him to do that different it's a different feeling i think different you're you're part of the band in a different way yeah i remember he uh i read somewhere when he was doing rolling thunder that i think he decided that he was going to uh you know sing isis without the guitar and that he uh i think he asked patty smith to for some advice, or they were talking. I read some interview with Patti Smith, and uh, she said, and Bob said to me, you know, but I don't know what to do with my hands, you know, because I'm not used to having my hands free. And and she said, uh, just punch the air, Bob. (laughs) Just punch the air like, you know, like I do. And I'm only copying you, because that's like the way you sing, you know, normally, and whatever it was. But when when you see him in the, um, the Rolling Thunder Scorsese film, yeah, he's not just punching the air. I mean, he's doing fabulous Amazing stuff with his hands. Mm. Yeah. By the way, what did you make of that? The Scorsese film? Yeah, the yeah. The newest one? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the uh, Rolling Thunder one, yeah. I mean, I loved it. Uh, first of all, the, the that's, that might be my favorite period, Dylan, of all, the Rolling Thunder. Mm. Um, when Ronaldo and Claire came out, the four-hour version in the movie theaters, mm. I I, have, I was in London for that at that time, and you know it was playing in the Camden Town Theater, and all four hours I sat through it twice in a row, so I got eight hours, and it you know made a big impression. I loved that that whole time, and it just seemed so fun and free and loose, and you know all the stuff you would want, and so that is a backdrop with that footage. And that music and those people. And then that framing tale 
you know, I just love that. I, I love that he that that there was this spoof going on, <laughs> and that that probably was why he was clearly it was why he was so uh, willing to do it and to talk. You know, because he was he was in on a joke. They were putting, you know, it was a put on and it was fun. Yeah, it turns out he's got a hard on for comedy as well, right? He does. <laughs> just not, it's, it's just his mother was crossing the line. I think otherwise you yeah. would have been fine. It wasn't that sneery though. Uh, that's the... That's the thing. I mean, that was the, the glory of uh, of sixty five, sixty six, Bob. That uh, that sneeriness was sort of it was dangerous. This was it was more playful. I thought the uh, the Scorsese one, and and oh, no, I'm yeah. not saying that that was better or worse. It was just yeah. a different. You know, I mean, do you do you find any sweetness in his uh, in his later stuff, Dan? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think you could do it as long as he's done it and stayed so open if he approached things, you know, in a real hard-edged way. I, I think you got to, just to stay open and 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 still have those conduits flowing in and out of you, I think you got to make, probably make peace with a lot of things and then allow the sweetness to, you know, when he sings those crooners, I mean, you can't. You have to approach that with with sweetness, right? And mm. he does. And and there's such a gentleness in his voice. And uh, on this new one too, you know, uh, it's, there's just uh, there's almost no pretense and no artifice. Um, you know, maybe you could say, well, he's mellowed with age, so that's that's all right. Well, again, or maybe like you know, like in the '90s when he took time out to, to relearn things, then came back. Maybe that's what he did with the with the American Standards albums. You know, he, he took some time out. He learned a right. bit about singing in a certain way and those sort of kind of tender songs. And a lot of right. people have pointed that you can that Rough and Rowdy Ways is infused with this kind of I've learned things from the Sinatra songbook kind of ethos. You can kind of hear that, can't you? Absolutely. Uh, it's like he he did his homework and now he can apply it to his own things and. You know, that's what he did back in 1959, too. It's interesting. A lot of people, I think, have sort of gotten all the stuff that Dylan soaked up, all those, like, you know, the whole early country folk music, uh, blues. He sort of sucked it all in and, and re, you know, recast it and made it his own. When you first hear those, the Harry Smith stuff, if mm. you've heard Dylan first, it's, a, you know, it's, it's revelatory. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah it's where he go. Oh, that's where he go. Oh, he got, oh, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, he breathed all this in. So I think he's done the same with those, uh, those, all the crooner stuff. And then hear what he's doing with it now. Incredible. Uh, is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, Stuck Inside, Immobile. Engineered by Rob Ackerman and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Well, Mac the Finger said to Louis the King, I got 40 red, white, and blue shoestrings and a thousand telephones that don't ring. Do you know where I can get rid of these things? And Louis the King said, well, let me think for a minute, son. 
And he said, yes, I think it can be easily done. Just take everything down the Highway 61. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 